Nerd. I'm Mel Davis, but you can call me Orpington. And I'm Leah Richards. I don't like gravy. What could that possibly mean? Luckily, it's related to the first story we're getting onto. Yep, this week we are chickens. As in, like, the actual birds, the gallus gallus, not huge cowards or anything. I mean, I'm maybe a bit of a coward, but not a huge one. Yeah, I mean, I'm not super brave. Like, there's a healthy amount of cowardice that anyone should encourage. Yeah, you know, not leaping out in front of speeding cars or... I feel like a redeeming trait as a human species is a mix of bravery and cowardice. So people will do big and amazing things and someone will be at the back of the back going, Ooh, I'm gonna... I feel like that just ensures the survival of a species a lot longer. It has its evolutionary advantages. Like those fish with the big bullish ones who assert their masculinity and then the little darting jack types who will just kind of wait on the very fringes until the like the alpha fish, if that's a thing, is looking the other way and then nip in and do their fertilisation. Rock iguanas do that as well. The smaller males pretend to be ladies, hide in amongst the harem, fluff themselves on a rock while they're waiting for the big male to turn his back and then hop on the nearest girl to get the job done. I feel like any more and we risk losing our clean badge on iTunes. I was very careful about my description. I'm not going to go any further. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. We should probably start talking so much about weird sexual behaviours in other animals. That's pretty much Antonia's bag. Yeah, we should ask her on sometime, maybe. We need to find some weird sexual behaviours for her to inspire us with. No, that that sounds odd. (laughs) We're not that kind of podcast. (laughs) It's going to start to sound like we're inviting her for a weirdly science-themed threesome. I guarantee that someone in our Twitter followers has experienced one of those. Twitter Uh, followers, if you're out there, and you have experienced a weirdly scientific three-way, then... Congratulations, I guess. Maybe yeah. tell us about it. Like we don't we don't need to know. That's personal information which you are very welcome to keep to yourself. But I hope you had fun. And remember, make sure you wrote down some results afterwards, because otherwise it's not science. That's what makes it scientific. <laughs> anyway, we've got stories to cover. We do. Our stories are starting off with Something that I could frankly spend the entire episode talking about, and if we end up doing that, then that's okay by me, and I hope you're along for the ride as well, listeners at home, because we're looking at chickens. More specifically, happy chickens. Han Lovely of Linchirping University has been investigating how to make chickens optimistic and keep them that way. Now, when you think of happy chickens, you might just be thinking of that new posh takeaway up in Clifton that does fancy fried chicken at high prices for small portions. Much in the tradition of Clifton, we're gentrifying everything. Or you might be thinking of that one particular egg brand which toots its horn about the wonderful conditions their ladies live in. Their eggs certainly have very yellow yolks. That's just because they feed them food colouring. Well, we'll have to wait for further research to find out if chickens enjoy eating food colouring, but maybe they can use the same models for chicken behaviour diagnostic, as Hannah Lovely has pioneered here. Because the press release covering her research, Optimism Remains in Chickens in Enriched Environments Despite Exposure to Stress, describes what is just the most heartwarming and charming kind of science which I can possibly imagine, and that's 
offering chickens an enriched life to try and figure out if they're enjoying themselves. I think my favourite part is how they established the base level of optimism for the chickens in the first place. How they tested the chickens' attitude. Because some chickens may be innate pessimists. They see it as a grain silo half empty instead of one half full. Working on the principle of a glass half full or half empty as an indicator for someone's general attitude. The test subject chickens were taught to distinguish between black and white, where one of the colours contained a reward. The challenge was then changed up and the chickens were presented with grey symbols, exactly halfway between the black and white symbols they'd already seen. Whether or not they went for the grey ones expecting a reward was taken to be an indicator of their level of optimism or pessimism. I mean, it takes the half-empty, half-full idiom to its natural conclusion of a halfway coloured button maybe containing food. Are you a brave chicken? Are you courageous? Are you optimistic? Will you get fed? And then, once you've got that baseline of who is or is not an optimistic chicken... You can compare how well that optimistic attitude stands up to stress. Now, I want to be very clear that when they talk about stressing chickens, they're doing so in a nice, supportive, and caring way. There's no aggressive chicken handling. It's not like in Legend of Zelda way, if you stress out a chicken, all of them try and murder the hero of time or something. So there were chickens that had grown up in blank, plain, sterile surroundings, what you might expect to be a kind of a lab chicken experience, and those which had grown up in a complex and stimulating environment. And then, the stress which was, in this case, irregular light and noise intervals, just lights flashing on and off, noises happening irregularly at loud volumes, not too distressing, but enough to throw them off balance when they weren't expecting it, as much as a chicken can have a daily schedule. I mean, they're fairly simple beasts. If you start making funny noises at them, they are going to be like... Is that the funny noise or the chicken? Both. But the effect on the chickens of having their world messed around in this way was that the animals who'd grown up in those less interesting pens lost their optimistic attitudes. And Hannah Lovely, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Physics, Chemistry and Biology at Linköping University, so taking care of most of the science in the entire academic faculty, it seems. Yeah, the only stuff she's not dealing with is like, Earth sciences, I guess? Space? Yeah. Okay, so the everything but space professor, Anna Lovely, (laughs) says that one interesting result was that chickens in both types of environments were equally optimistic before being exposed to stress. So it really is just the environment that makes more susceptibility to stress-related depression. Or a more interesting environment confers on them a certain amount of psychological resilience. And Josephina Zida, who holds a doctorate in ethology from Linköping University, offers a few comments at the end of this paper, agreeing that if a chicken can hide under something or fly up and perch somewhere, it can manage a stressful situation better. We believe the possibility of controlling the situation better resulted in these individuals being able to maintain optimism even after a period with increased stress. So yeah, resilience in chickens. Of course, resilient chicken does sound like a low-level enemy from an MMORPG. Maybe a slightly crap MMORPG? Like a harder fight than average chicken. Then you have resilient chicken, then you have boss chicken. 
then super boss chicken, god boss chicken, chaotic energy chicken. I'll take your word for it. And for those of you who click through to the press release, you get to enjoy some pictures of Hannah Lovely, Associate Professor, Linköping University, posing with chickens. It looks like they're just having a lovely time. Maybe this is one of the optimistic chickens from an interesting environment that's been placed into a, the professor's hands, because it seems to be handling the camera quite well. It knows its angles. Any professional chicken handlers out there, anyone whose work includes daily interactions with optimistic chickens, please let us know how this research will affect your day-to-day -day practice, or if it's something that you already knew, that there were just optimistic chickens out there who are ready to take the world by storm if we let them. And we should never let them. But while we're talking about animals having complex emotions, let's move on to a group of animals which we all generally think of as being intelligent and emotionally complex. Whales! And this research from Florida Atlantic University describes itself as groundbreaking genetic kinship studies of beluga whales. Because whilst the complex social networking of whales has been reported on for some time, about the strength of the family units and the frequency of their flocking and migratory patterns, this new research goes above and beyond just the family unit which has been reported so far, and identified a kinship extending beyond just the immediate parent and child, but whole pods who will swarm together for life and teach each other and interact and migrate and follow their own distinct lanes in migratory patterns, staying away from other pods and living a far more complex life than anyone really expected. And the press release are referring to this as a phenomenon of the whales valuing a culture that their family history is such that they have a cultural background which dictates that they should return to this particular spot to breed and to give birth and to take care of their tiny babies. I mean, it ticks all the boxes for a broad definition of culture. If you've got a population in a location with regular behaviours, and that's passed down generation by generation across a long-standing history, the whale data here that they are working with goes back to 1978 through 2010. This is the latest evidence of a long-standing whale culture. Previous studies have looked into this in terms of studying genetic differences between groups and populations of whales, looking at mitochondrial DNA, which passes directly down the maternal line, and that did suggest a strong loyalty to an individual's group of origin and by extension to the places and migratory routes that that group favoured. So this study involved whales from major coastal concentration areas in the North Pacific in three geographic areas, specifically the Gulf of Alaska, the Bering Chukchi Beaufort Seas and the Sea of Okhotsk. The research team used sample and genetic markers from 1,647 whales going back across those three decades to encompass all major coastal summering aggregations in those three geographic areas. What that works out to is 1,444 samples of mitochondrial DNA and eight microsatellite loci, and they also further analysed 203 Russian Far East whales who had data reported previously in literature. And it turns out that related whales, closely related whales, were found to aggregate together coastal summering areas each year 
and close kin documented at the same summoning sites up to 20 years apart. And you might reasonably ask, why does it matter? Apart from the fact that it suggests that these animals have got far more complex and sophisticated interrelations than many people might have thought, if we have a better idea of how their habits are formed, we can better manage our impacts on their environments to support their continued success as a species. And author Greg O'Corrie Crow says at the end of the press release, Findings from our study are expanding our understanding of how sophisticated non-primate societies can be, and how important culture is for the survival of these species. Our findings will influence our thinking in terms of how populations and species are going to adapt to dramatic environmental changes. There are few places where this is more urgent than in rapidly changing polar regions. And Okari Crow and his colleagues make a point of acknowledging the help they had from native communities. The polar regions are home to a number of indigenous populations who have got their own understandings of the nature that's been going on around them as they've been getting on with their lives. And as we were talking about in our last episode with regards to being interdisciplinary, this also includes asking the people who were already there for their insights and opinions and... In the parts of Alaska, Russia and Canada where the study was being conducted, they did that and Okori Crow says, None of this would have been possible without the help, guidance and hospitality of our native partners. Credit where credit is due. Especially if the credit is, hey, how are we going to understand the behaviours of whales going back for decades? How about talking to people who've been living alongside whales for decades? It's a really good start. So yeah, with the whale-sized stuff from the last episode and all of the whale civilization and culture stuff in this story, then if there are any whale biologists out there who could tell us about whales and all the cool stuff they do, then let us know your whale facts. I, for one, would love to hear more about the giants of the sea. I hear that's on their business cards. What, whales? Yeah, every time you pass them at the aquarium, they just... Slap it up against the window. Walius Whalenson, giant of the sea. Well, let's keep things rolling with the Animal Corner special. This episode seems to be moving on to more mammals, but this time a bit more land-based, a bit more human-like even, uh, in that they've you know, got arms and legs and stuff. And that they're distant cousins? I mean, again, Welsh heritage, distant cousin, really doesn't mean very much to me. Welsh-Italian heritage as well. You've got so many cousins. Everywhere, all over the shop. <laughs> we're talking about primates. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, like, if you imagine the primate family as kind of a big fan, then lemurs are, like, the other end. Straight up, the other end of it from humans. Fairly distant branch, as far as primates go. But they are interesting people whose opinions and input are valued. Very useful for a little bit of self-reflection, really, seeing how they behave and how they do lets us know a bit more about us and how we do as well. So in the first lemur study we're looking at, we're talking about lemur socialising and specifically the way lemurs socialise with other lemurs they perceive to be clever. How do you gauge how clever a lemur is? That's a very good question to ask, and you'd probably be better off asking Daniel Rubinstein, Princeton's class of 1877 professor of zoology and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology and lead author of the April 5th paper in the current biology journal, who would be able to tell you that you give them a box. 
a box with a grape in it. And if they can get the grape out of the box, it's a little finger puzzle, really, then, hey, they get food. Other lemurs see them get food and go, oh, that lemur's got food. Not enough to share, just enough for themselves. They've figured out the puzzle. They must be quite clever. And this seems to be a winning approach to making lots of lemur friends. Indeed, even if your social standing in the group is otherwise rock bottom, if you are the lemur who can solve the great box puzzle, everyone else is like, hey, scoot on over here. Let me comb some of the fleas out of your fur. Maybe that lemur ain't so bad. Never mind the smell. I mean, we're all lemurs. We all smell. Nonetheless, having set groups of ring-tailed lemurs, this grape-in-a-box puzzle, having noted which individuals were the first to solve it and which other individuals watched them solve it, the researchers then tracked the amount of social grooming behaviour. It's a pretty strong indicator for your social standing in most primate groups. I mean, I know for facts that if you spotted two girls in year nine braiding each other's hair in class, that was like serious social bonding time. I have a general distrust of barbers and sharp things near my face, which does explain the beard, but I believe you. But enough about my face and behaviours, let's stick with the Lima behaviours and first author on the paper, Ipek Kulasi, who completed her PhD at Princeton in 2014, says... We found that lemurs, who were frequently observed by others while solving the task to retrieve the food, received more affiliative behaviours than they did before they learned. That affiliative behaviour meaning grooming. All that nice attention they're getting. This suggests that the frequently observed lemurs may have been perceived as successful individuals. And I think we're touching on elements of whale culture here as well, that, you know, there's a learning, there's passing down of information and skills, and receiving social networking boons for it. It's basically the point of a species having society in the first place, whether you're a large aquatic mammal or a small Madagascan primate or indeed a naked ape. It's the whole point. And they've even got a comment from somebody who was not part of the study, Lydia Hopper, the assistant director of the Lester E. Fisher Center for the Study and Conservation of Apes at Chicago's Lincoln Park Zoo, notes that she is often asked whether primates that innovate new skills become more popular, and this experiment provides the first evidence this might be the case. Even after the puzzle was removed from the lemur's environment, the experts were groomed more regularly by others than before they'd acquired the skill. I want to work in an environment where people come up to me and ask, do primates that innovate new skills become more popular in their social groups? That's something which I... I want to have in my day-to-day. Well, I guess you're going to have to work very, very hard and become a primate expert at a big zoo. I mean, other people can ask me other questions as well. I just want to be an oracle, basically. In your current professional capacity, I don't think that would be as fun. Hmm. What do oracles get in the old stories? It's Hi, mostly. Uh, I mean, I work on Stokes Croft. There's a lot going about. Off their tits high. Off those volcanic fumes. They are tripping balls. Noted. (laughs) 
That's why the things they say are always so vague and weird, because they are stoned out of their gourds. You can read more about these clever, clever lemurs in the Princeton University press release, or the one from the cell press themselves, who are the publishers of the current biology journal. They've got one too, called How Lemurs Win Friends and Influence People. Well, other lemurs. In the context in which you are a ring-tailed lemur living in a group of ring-tailed lemurs, it's other lemurs you need to influence. Do they get to hang around with the capybaras? Everyone seems to hang around with the capybaras in zoo pictures. They are on entirely the wrong continent. The same zoo, though. Doesn't matter, you shouldn't mix animals from different biomes. That's not good zoo husbandry. Capybaras just seem so chill all of the time, I doubt they'd mind. Capybaras are deeply chill, but they are from South America. The lemurs are from an island off the edge of Africa. It's, it's, it shouldn't be done. Well, they're all in Chicago, so... (laughs) Anyway. Moving on from the friendly lemur to the hungry lemur. This is the part where... Lemur society looks a bit like human society, and that makes it useful for looking at human society when you don't have time to look at humans. We call this being a model organism. It just speeds things up in small environments. It's a bit easier to study and just keep an eye on things. Also, it's very difficult to get ethics approval for things like this study, which is more physiological than social, in which lemurs were given calorie-restricted diets. Now, they do note the controversial nature of caloric restriction in the opening paragraph. Chronic caloric restriction consists in eating a reduced but balanced diet from early adult life onwards. Previous research into macaques in particular, which have an average lifespan of 40 years, again, a little bit faster than humans, but not all that much of 40 years, had previously demonstrated a beneficial effect on the incident of age-related pathologies. However, its positive effect on the lifespan of primates remained controversial. To study this questions, researchers, in this case the ones publishing in the Journal of Communications Biology, focused on the grey mouse lemur, a small primate whose lifespan of around 12 years, a bit more sped up than humans, you can figure a few things out, makes a very good model for the study of ageing. For much the same reasons as lots of genetic research is done on fruit flies, you've got a smaller time frame to work on than if you're working with people who might live to, you know, 80 It's useful. It gets a lot done quite quickly. And seeing as lemurs are, as you mentioned earlier, distant relations, but relations all the same of humans, then you can figure out a lot for the anatomical and physiological similarities of, for example, diet effects. It's hard to figure out the effect of diet changes on other model animals like zebrafish or frogs. The mouse lemurs in particular have a number of physiological similarities with humans, which make it useful for this sort of research. And from about early adulthood, their two groups of lemurs were given slightly different diets. One were allowed to pretty well eat their fill. The others were restricted by about 30% fewer calories. And It was observed how long they lived, and also how healthy they were in later life. The caloric restriction increased the lifespan of the trial group of lemurs by almost 50%, the median survival of 9.6 years compared to 6.4 years in the control group. And for the first time among primates, apparently, scientists observed that the maximum lifespan had been extended, with almost a third of the animals in the test group, the ones receiving the calorie-restricted diet, still alive by the time that the oldest control lemur had died at the age of 11.3 years. 
So they're living longer by having a third less food. And they really were living healthier into their old age. There didn't seem to be alterations to their cognitive performance as they aged. Their motor capacities remained pretty good. And fewer diseases usually associated with aging, such as cancer or diabetic symptoms. Which, if you look at the biology of diabetes and cancer as either subverting the usual means of metabolism in a body or hijacking the metabolism to power the actual affliction itself in cancer's case, then that makes a lot of sense. You can draw pretty straight lines there. On the other hand, it's not going to stop me personally from eating big portions. It's too late for me. On a third hand or a tail? Prehensile tail? Yeah, yeah, let's. Does that mean that the researchers from Princeton who were tricking them into eating grapes were technically poisoning the animals? They were only giving them one grape at a time. You're perfectly allowed to have treat days, that's fine. While we're talking of small furry animals and social interactions, let's talk about human children. What a bunch of snitches they are. Have you been around kids for like a prolonged period of time? And as soon as anything happens, they're running off to tell someone like, Oh, mummy, mummy, the woman took my kinder egg or something. Bunch of little tattletales that they are. Who have you been stealing kinder eggs from? No one. Some people who spend a lot of time around children are interested in why they tell on one another. Why it is that there's that... There's always that one kid who'll go running to the teacher and be like... Mrs. Jones, Mrs. Jones, Jimmy's climbing trees again. And, like, Mrs. Jones don't care. It turns out they probably do this because, even as an undesirable behaviour, to some adults looking at the kids, it's generally accepted that, you know, reporting misbehaviour to the authority is a good social behaviour to have as a human, and we encourage that in children broadly. So, yeah, they do that. Honestly, this press release is, like, three short paragraphs long. And co-author Dr. Amri Shavesh does say, children's tattling is often viewed as an undesirable behaviour. I'm doing an American accent because we don't call it tattling in England. Yeah. I'm just noting I have no idea what accent Dr. Amri Shavesh actually has. But I would say it's more broadly viewed as an undesirable behaviour by your peers than by the adults around you. Because the grown-ups do want to know if you're stealing food from other kids. So, the summary here. Kids pretty much do what you tell them to. They're not as complex as whales, let's face it. So we've had animals, we've had chickens, we've had whales, we've had lemurs, we've even had humans. Which, we've all had that one assembly where, oh no, humans are animals as well. Possibly not if you went to a, you know, that kind of church school. If your education was focused on creationism, you probably didn't have that assembly. Okay, we've all seen the Jungle Book, at least. Have we, though? Have you not? No, I have. Okay, if you've not heard The Bare Necessities, then contact us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. Or just look it up on YouTube, it's delightful. Time for just a few more quick stories about human animals. Let's start off with the kid one as well, because taking care of your human is very important. You've got to water them and feed them, brush their hair, tell them they're pretty, and give them health care, because human children who don't have access to health care 
have worse outcomes when it comes to life-threatening diabetic ketoacidosis. Surprise, surprise, if you have access to a doctor when you need one, your health outcomes are better. And while we're talking about the health outcomes... University of Waterloo managed to put pretty much the last decade of science communication into a single sentence, so well done to them for that. Vaccination apathy fueled by decades of misinformation. You know, all that stuff about, oh, vaccinating your children against measles, mumps and rubella will give them autism, which aside from the fact it's not true, it's horrifying that people would rather have a dead child than an autistic one. We could get into it in great depth. I've got a whole wealth of little vaccine factoids, but we would end up going on for a very long time. If you want to hear more of our vaccine factoids which is a fun phrase to say, <laughs> then you can find us at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter and at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. If you are a whale biologist or a chickenologist. Or you just really like chickens, maybe? Yeah, and you want to talk about happy chickens, recuperating, rehabilitating chickens that have been stressed. No, recuperating is the best possible word. Oh, I get it. Yeah. You know, like former battery hens who get to live in gardens now. That's recuperation. You're welcome. <laughs> Don't give me that face. That face of, your puns are fine, but mine aren't now, is it? My puns are funny. If you want to talk about chicken culture, whale culture, kid culture, any other culture even, then find us at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com, EurekaNerdcast, Twitter, all those places and more. Actually, I think that's all of them. And with that, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. I don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. Could you do that? Just, I'm near Richards, I don't like gravy. I think it's a, it would sound weird. Do you not think it would sound weird? I think if we're going for the chicken run reference, I mean, you're robbing with... me of my my opportunity to do my excellent Bob's impression. <laughs> I don't want to be a pie. I don't like gravy. Okay, well, we've got that in the can. <laughs> we've got that recorded. And then in playback, I'll do two versions. You can have power veto which one goes out. Okay. <laughs>